This episode is powered by Safety FM. Welcome to the Safety Consultant Podcast. I am your host, Sheldon Primus. Uh, This is the podcast where I teach you the business of being a safety consultant. Well, this week we're going to have an interview. In our interview, we're going to be interviewing with Mr. Blair Boyd of Scotland. I think you'll be able to tell by the accent (laughs) when we do talk. So uh, Blair was really kind to uh, do this interview with me. It was late in the night for him. And uh, he is a chartered health and safety practitioner, and he definitely works closely with business leaders engaged in all levels of the workforce. Throughout our conversation, we talk about how he has worked and basically um, came up in the system and was managing multi, multi, multiple people in areas of not only doing their inspection, doing uh, some of the employee uh, interaction with management and management interaction. So he was the liaison between them, uh, helping them with all their working relationships. And uh, truly, he has a, a very great mind for those regulatory things in the U.K., So he was helping me understand some of the rules and uh, basically how, for me as a U.S.-based consultant, how those rules for OSHA kind of meets up with some of the U.K. rules. And truly, even though my business is international, I haven't really done a bunch of work in the U.K., so it was great for me to get a good foundation. So as Blair was going through his his pathway into safety and health, we also touched on a few other topics related to regulation, culture, and he talked about the culture of one company that he worked for where he was the safety and health sole officer of a construction, uh, residential construction uh, area aspect of their company. So uh, that was like really excellent. So this week we are not going to do a tip of the week. We're just going to get right into the episode with Blair. Uh, No sponsors on this one as well. So it's just going to be me and Blair. We're talking. And then right after, we're just going to end the episode. And then next Thursday, or actually this Thursday, we'll complete the rest of this episode. So you're going to have Blair Boyd for two episodes this week. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and let's bring Blair into the conversation that we're going to have. And go get him, Nick, this week. Tell us everything about Blair. Okay, everything about Blair. So, my name's Blair Boyd. I've been in safety for a number of years now. I dread to think how many years. It's, uh, <laughs> it's been a few, shall we say. Um, I kind of started out in the, the printing industry as a young, fresh-faced, fresh out of school, bit young and a bit wild, trying to work out my way in the world. Um, and I started there as a trainee. And I progressed through that pretty quickly. I had a really great manager, a guy called Stephen Grew, um, who I still keep in touch with today. Wow. And he said, I know how to cure you, all your wild behaviour. I'm going to give you a load of responsibility and get you progressing through the ranks a little bit. 
So I got the the dubious honour of becoming the forklift trainer. Wow. Um, for operating the forklifts on site. And I was only 19, 20 years old at this stage. <laughs> so I was training guys twice my age sometimes on how to operate forklifts. And that kind of sparked my interest in health and safety. Then I got a real great opportunity came my way. A manager had paid to go on the IOSH Managing Safely and he decided a couple of days before it that he didn't really fancy it and rather than waste the, the money he decided to send me on it so I was <laughs> awesome. That's great. that I was going on this health and safety course and I thought right okay this will be interesting so I went along the course and I was absolutely blown away they were talking about hazards and risks and workplace safety and all of this great stuff and I'm thinking wow people get paid to do this for a living <laughs> this is what I want to do wow so really inspired off the back of that course and that was where all the kind of passion and the drive came from to get involved in that so <laughs> that means a, a safety star was born at that moment yeah. you had a little spark <laughs> that came yeah yeah pretty much pretty much it was interesting to get the the information from that and then see a career path that could be mapped out from that and do that yeah. as a full-time career. So... Oh, hold on. Before you go anymore, um, people might just kind of guess by the accent that you're maybe not native to the U.S. And uh, so don't forget that part. Tell them where, you've, where you're from and uh, and your, your background there as well. Okay, so I'm from Jacksonville in Florida. <laughs> go Jags. <laughs> not really. Not, not really. So I'm from Glasgow in Scotland, which is in the U.K., Great, great, because I have an international audience, so I know that some people will recognize right away the accent, and uh, some people will uh, they'll think like, "Oh man, that's a real Scottish guy in the states," and uh, they don't know that you're you're presently, you know, in Scotland. And were you born and raised there as well? Yes, yes, I was. Yeah, uh, a little place called Clay Bank. <laughs> which has a big industrial heritage. Um, it was famous for building ships yeah. and building sewing machines. Really? The biggest employers in the town was Singer's Sewing Machines, which was an American company, uh -huh. and John Brown's Shipbuilding, which built some of the most luxurious ocean-going liners, as well as battleships in the world. Wow. So, one of the one of the famous ships is in uh, Long Beach in California and it's called the Queen Mary and that was built in Clyde Bank on the River Clyde that sounds so familiar yep yeah that really sounds familiar uh, was that uh, in action with one of the world wars uh, yes I believe it was a troop carrying ship in the second world war <sighs> That's probably where I remember because I the name just just stands out as a, as I should know this. <laughs> so, oh, that's excellent. So also the the QE two was built in Claybank or the Queen Elizabeth two was built for the Canal Line in Claybank in the sixties. It's now docked in Dubai and it's being converted into a luxury hotel in Dubai now. Mm. But also built on the Clyde by one of the best shipbuilding houses in the world, which was John Brown. It's no longer there um, due to a lot of kind of political history. No, no. And 
we could probably fill two podcasts with if we went into but yeah that's uh, mm-hmm. that's John Brown's so a lot of safety was all based around Glasgow being a big industrial place mm-hmm. um, you'll find that the west of Scotland has probably one of the highest memberships of all of the IOSH branches yeah. in the UK it's like 1200 um, right yeah there's around 1200 members mm. and that's that's quite a, a big turnout for such a, a small part of the UK yeah no kidding and that's really just a chapter it's not like it's many chapters you got no, one chapter one chapter yeah wow well, well, give me your uh, keep going with your your, your journey because I do want to talk about IOSH if I can uh, after you're yeah. done with that. So uh, I left you when you first started getting into uh, safety. You landed a great job after that, and uh, so so what happened? Yeah, so I got my first kind of interest in the construction industry. Um, we carried out a project to set up a data center before data centers were the popular things that they are now mm-hmm. because the printing business that I worked for was a, a bolt-on business to a big financial business. Um, so we set up this data center and we had contractors in working. So I worked a lot of shifts, kind of helping out the contractors, giving them support, driving the footpath, giving them, issuing their permits and doing things like that. Just kind of looking after them on site, working a lot of different shifts as well, like back shift and night shift. Nice. And I progressed pretty well through that role and really enjoyed it. Thought this is really interesting. I, I like this side of things. And uh, we installed a huge, big, and an uninterruptible power supply as well to, to power up the data center if the power went off, which was really interesting. I found that side of things fascinating. And was that so, um, all like a, a backup generator scenario, or was it coming yeah, from? Yeah, okay. Huge, huge, big backup generator as well as a data center and the kind of battery setup as well for the non-interruptible power supply. So you mm. could have thirty minutes on the batteries, followed by the generator kicking in to power it indefinitely. That's so such detailed work because even with those generators, you got to know if you want you know randomly round versus. Um, uh, what and when I say wound, I mean the actual. Uh, I guess the the coils inside the generator. Would that be uh, yeah. what it is? I, I remember having a Siemens uh, generator, and I believe that was one of your past companies. But I, um, uh, I was a plant manager at a wastewater treatment plant and we're upgrading all our switch gears. And we had a Siemens uh, guy come in, and uh, he just was a brilliant electrical engineer and all the different things he was teaching me about that and about the generators and uh, I didn't know there was just that much more to, to figure out so so I can only imagine the integral and technical things that you had to just learn as you're doing that job yeah yeah um, yeah it was really interesting especially getting the kind of interface with the tradesmen and understanding how they were operating and how they carried out their tasks mm. being able to get a little bit of kind of FaceTime with them and talk to them about it so it was great really interesting times so I kind of progressed on with that and then went back to my, my normal role with health and safety as an additional role mm. and they were going to get me a full time safety manager's role and that's kind of where I was transitioning to and I was lined up to go on a university degree as a day release student as part of my role 
Um, after completing the NEBOSH general certificate, which is a kind of general health and safety qualification mm-hmm. in the UK, yeah, yeah. it's normally the, the kind of main one that an employer will look for. You look for the NEBOSH general certificate, and then you'll look for the higher level qualifications such as the NEBOSH diploma or a degree level qualification. That's the kind of standard. There's also another route, which is a kind of on-the-job mm-hmm. training route called a NVQ, which is a national vocational qualification. Okay. An assessor will come and actually assess you carrying out the job and then certify you as a certified professional for that. And does that um, have a safety component as well? Yes, yes. So that that's the health and safety qualification as well. Okay. So it, looking at you carrying out the role as a health and safety practitioner and demonstrating that by providing the evidence back. Huh. But there's also the NEBOSH diploma and the degree kind of roots into it. So they've all got their distinct differences and they're all valued at the same level. Um, what the kind of structure is in the UK that people look for is to go through the the levels of IOSH. So for technical membership, you would normally have a NEBOSH general certificate. Mm-hmm. If you want to move up to graduate level, you would be looking at one of those higher level qualifications. Mm-hmm. Um, such as the NPQ, the degree or the NEBOSH diploma. And then moving through from there, you would then be able to or be eligible to undertake one of the two routes through the IOSH accreditation to become a chartered health and safety professional because IOSH is a chartered body. They've been sent by Royal Charter Hmm. and that they can have a chartered accreditation for health and safety practitioners. And I believe it's the only one in the world that's got the the Royal Charter. That's awesome. I um, See, for us in in the U.S. side, we we really, um, I get this question all the time from people wanting to be uh, safety consultants because that's pretty much my a bulk of my audience are, are either they're practicing pra- practicing safety uh, officers that are get the the thought of oh yeah someday I'm going to go start my own safety consulting business, or I have people who have already started their safety consulting business, so I'm helping them along that path. But I do get that question a lot yeah. from my students about what's the path to. Uh, they don't say it this way, but the idea is so I could prove that I have some safety and health, uh, like chops, knowledge, understanding, and they're looking for letters behind their names. So they want some sort of certification. So I'm always answering that question, and I just didn't know how I would approach it on an international level. And I knew Nibosh, and I was very aware of that. I didn't know about... Um, uh, well, for the ISO 45001, you know, to be an auditor and a lead auditor. and uh, But from yeah. from that aspect, that's really all I knew. So hearing about the different uh, certifications that you guys are using there, and I don't know if that's a, a UK-specific thing, or do you see it also in the African countries and maybe even oh, in Russia? Yeah. Yeah, IOSH is an international membership organisation, so you can attain that in any country in the world as long as you can demonstrate that you fit the criteria and then if you want to become chartered, you go through one of the initial professional development processes, either providing a skills development portfolio or carrying out the examination-based 
accreditation. I believe IOSH are in the works at the moment of potentially changing some of the grading structures and also introducing a route to prove experiential learning called an APL, which is accreditation for prior experiential learning. And that's going to go to a vote with the IOSH members at the next AGM whether these changes are going to be ratified to then progress through next year. Excellent. Well, um, for those that aren't familiar with IOSH, can you uh, tell them the acronym and the actual uh, uh, meaning of the acronym? Sure. So IOSH is the Institution of Occupational Safety and Health. And it was a UK-based organisation, or a charitable organisation that worked for the betterment of occupational safety and health internationally. And they sponsor a lot of research into health and safety and (laughs) developing systems, processes, as well as providing a kind of member network across the world um, that's based on a branch model that the branches or as you would call them in the US chapters each meet um, on a, a frequent basis they'll have a guest speaker come along who will then provide continuous professional development to the members by presenting some of the things that are has it subject matter expertise they'll have some of the branch business such as the kind of committee works and how each of the interacting groups like the construction group or the rail industry group have met nationally and they'll cascade some of that information and it's mostly run by volunteers with a lot of full-time kind of regional managers that Mm -hmm. support the branch network so it's a a great organisation they do some fantastic work internationally and I would highly recommend anyone listening to the podcast to sign up and become an IOSH member Excellent, I get the newsletters uh, in the email and every time I read those emails and I'm seeing the penalties and then jail time and I'm like what? Not only are they getting penalties over there but we're getting jail time too and uh, the US, we don't really have that with, uh, with our OSHA regulations or anything so it's it's really eye opening when I see that because I do have an international business, but generally when I do work outside of the U.S., it's either in the Caribbean or Canada. <laughs> so I'm still considered international, but I do some work. Um, I, I haven't gone over quite too far over the pond, as they say. You know, <laughs> I'm willing to. No, I'm willing to. Yeah. So that's why you're you're like I'm soaking in information. Uh, everything you're telling me, Blair, is just you know I'm like a sponge, just you know getting this thing in. So that that's excellent. Um, for for everyone's purposes, yeah. that probably go ahead, go ahead. That was probably one of the biggest changes in legislation in the UK um, coming in with a corporate manslaughter, corporate homicide. Um, kind of scenario that's now came into law that the controlling mind of an organisation or the director if you like of an organisation can now be personally prosecuted for a fatality at work and they can face a charge of corporate homicide, corporate manslaughter that they've corporately killed someone Wow and um I know this is going to probably be a little, little technical per se, but uh, I, I know with the UK, Scotland, even England with Brexit, 
how does this all work together uh, where if there is a mandate, is it coming U.S. or is it coming from a U.K. version or uh, how is this, uh, how is it um, structured, if you will, for, for me not knowing the structure right now? So our laws are, a lot of the health and safety laws in the UK are based on European law. Um, there was an introduction of a thing a few years ago called the six pack of regulations, and that was the management of health and safety at work regulations, manual handling operations regulations, display screen equipment regulations, the workplace health, safety and welfare regulations, as well as the provisions and use of work equipment regulations and the personal protective equipment regulations. And each of these regulations were based in European law and are common um, across all of Europe. Hmm. What happened was the European Parliament proposes these laws and then they're ratified by each of the member states, but they'll adopt them into that country's law. So... Brexit's a bit yeah, kind of tear up as to how that's all going to look going forward. Yeah. Um, but some of the some of the best health and safety laws in the UK have come from Europe and come from some of the arrangements that have came through the European Union. Oh. Well, you know, I'm I'm one of these uh, regulation uh, specialists for OSHA, so I know that. But getting getting a little idea of other laws and other things, because truly, when I tell people uh, when they are starting their own safety consulting business, I say you probably might want to start with regulation first before you can get to culture, because most people they can't even get past the regs <laughs> before they could get into safety yeah. culture. Yeah. Get the basics right first. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. So for Make sure you're complying with the law as a minimum. <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, yeah, you're seeing that? A, I was about to ask. Is that the same for you then? You're seeing that as well? Yeah. Oh, cool. And you were- yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's 101 in the UK is to to make sure that you comply with the law in the first instance before you get onto some of the fancier stuff like <laughs> cultural development and cultural modelling and human performance and bringing those aspects into it. You need to make sure that you've got your business protected first and foremost mm-hmm. that you're developing to make sure that you, you comply with the law as an absolute baseline minimum. <laughs> that makes sense. And... Uh... I know you you've you've have some some laws that you wanted to to kind of help us come to speed with and um, and I think just just listening to the inception of some of these rules is, is truly amazing because for us in seventy one is when uh, OSHA the administration started but the act was in nineteen seventy and truly it was just you know Congress was forced in that way saying all right country got fed up with all the injuries and illnesses. I believe it was like 45 a day or something similar to that at that time. So uh, that's what pushed the catalyst to pushing OSHA out. So what was some of the catalysts in, in you know, the, the UK that, that, you know, said, all right, enough's enough. We need some rules. Sure. So from 1961 to 1970, 1,200 people were being killed every year at work. 1,200 people every year from 1961 to 
and the UK recognised this as an issue and they appointed a gentleman called Alfred Robbins who was also known as Baron Robbins of Waldingham and he was appointed to carry out a review into health and safety at work. He came from a background that he had tried to be Prime Minister at one time. Um, he was a trade unionist and a Labour politician as well as being an industrialist. And um, due to poor timing, he never managed to quite attain the, the role of Prime Minister. But he had quite a significant role on the National Coal Board. And he carried out this report into what was happening, an industry that was causing all of these issues and leading to people being injured. Much of the law at the time in the UK was obscure and unintelligible. There was a haphazard mass of legislation, intricate in detail, difficult to amend and frequently out of date as well. There was various enforcement agencies that had overlapping jurisdictions and this caused a lot of confusion. Yeah, yeah. So you had, instead of having one regulatory body, for example, you had the factories inspectors who inspected factory premises and then you had environmental health who went out and looked at places that retailed things like food as well as kind of shops as well. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a bit of overlapping jurisdiction there. Mm. One of the main conclusions of Lord Robbins' report was there was one single cause above all else for all these accidents and ill health at work, and it was apathy. Mm. And he said a very famous quote at the end of the report, there was apathy at the top, apathy at the middle, and apathy mm. at the bottom of industry. Mm. And I think that's still up today. A lot of the issues that we see are down to apathy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's like one of the things when I do like a mock OSHA inspection and truly I look for the technical stuff. But when I'm introducing or talking to and interviewing with people and just you could tell, you get a general sense from an organization that some of these workers are completely tuned out. <laughs> I mean, they're just in management and they're completely tuned out. And uh, I, I count that as being apathy too. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. One of so there's some quotes that I've, I've kept a little note of because mm-hmm. I love some of the language that some of these reviews have written. Um, that's presented by some of the the really clever people that have been politicians that carry out some of these review panels. Mm-hmm. And Lord Robbins went on to found the Health and Safety at Work Act in 1974, which is the underpinning law of UK health and safety. Um, It's called quite predominantly the Parent Act. Hmm. So it's an act of parliament that ratifies a few things into law that says this is is our baseline, this is where we are working from. And one of the things that I, I took from the report that I've got a little note of here is the Robins report had far-reaching proposals. It devised a system whereby all employees and employers became aware that health and safety was a concern for everyone. And there should be ownership of health and safety. 
So one of the quotes is, our present system encourages too much reliance on state regulation and rather too little on personal responsibility and voluntary self-generating effort. Mm. So I thought that was quite... Yeah. Uh, does that mean the that they have uh, uh, just as a thought does that mean that they also have uh, personal culpability for people where not only can the company get fined but an individual get, can get fined yep so there's duties for employees under the health and safety at work act as well as the employer so if you do something willfully or recklessly in the course of your employment that leads to you or someone else being injured you could personally be prosecuted and this is an act of parliament so you would be prosecuted under criminal law wow. so it's not just potentially a fine there's also the more serious matter of going and standing in front of a criminal judge wow Okay, because once you started talking about that, and uh, and it, it makes perfect sense that everyone has to think of their own personal safety for themselves and for their coworkers, as opposed to just leaning on the employer. So I'm glad that that you know there's wording in that in the rules, and that was '74. You said, yeah. So it was yep. even after our OSHA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. And then some of the other quotes from the report were the suggestion that there was a need for a single comprehensive framework of legislation which would cover all work activity supported and supplemented by a series of controls to detail with specific problems assisted by voluntary standards and more flexible codes of practice. Hmm. Hmm. So an approved code of practice which is released in the UK is under a quasi-legal status that if you can demonstrate that you achieved the same thing by other means then all well and good but if you can't the regulator will use the approved code of practice to demonstrate how you should have done it as part of the prosecution wow now that's uh, a little novel because truly um what we're seeing with the OSHA regs and OSHA is over, um, they're over industry, general industry, construction. Uh, then also they have agriculture and maritime. So general industry, of course, is the biggest one. That's where you have pretty much anything from manufacturing to warehousing to retail to um, anything that is going to not have a construction, ag, or maritime component falls into that general industry. So mm-hmm. they don't have flexibility in most things with uh, with getting you get to the end results regardless of how you do it you follow this rule every once in a while you see they call them uh, performance standards which like for instance if they say you have to have a competent person on your job site they don't tell you how this person becomes competent uh, but the rule says you have to have the competent person to do inspections and everything else it's up to you how you decide Mm -hmm. that they're competent but other than that if they set a rule on uh, certain standards they don't they don't generally, I'll say generally, allow you to deviate from the base rules, even if you could prove that you have the same result, unless you do some sort of, um, uh, you ask for some sort of waiver, and there's you know special permissions for that, but it's usually industry-wide. Yeah. 
Hmm. Very interesting. That's really interesting. That's a slightly, slightly different take on it. Mm-hmm. So, if you want to launch back into the career journey, we've only covered up to my <laughs> illustrious career in printing so far. Yeah, go There's for it. There's a lot more to the journey yeah, than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see, my mind just, uh, as soon as I hear things, you know, it's like, you know, I jump on somewhere, I go in a tunnel, you know, you kind of rein me in there. Come on, just rein me in. <laughs> so, go ahead, tell yeah, us a little yeah. bit more. So, so I got to the stage that the business that I was working for at the time wanted me to look at moving into a full-time health and safety role. And I got the great offer of, let's get you to study a degree in health and safety. We'll pay for it and we'll give you time off work to go and study it. Wow. Happy days. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's awesome. This is exactly <laughs> where I want to be. Yeah. So I applied for a place at university. I got it all sorted out. I got all the forms signed. And I just needed the director's signature on this piece of paper. Mm. And the funds would be released and I'd be going to university. Mm. And on a Monday morning, in the middle of June, June, July, sorry, middle of July, a couple of weeks before I was due to start my place at university, I walked in to an office in our building and there was a note that all personnel were to attend a 2pm meeting in the canteen. This is a bit strange. Uh And we all go to the canteen at 2pm and all of the directorship come in and they say, we have some bad news. We're not going to sugarcoat it. There's going to be the potential that the printing section of this business will be outsourced um, to another organisation. Oh my. And there's the potential for everybody here to be made redundant. Oh. I thought, wow, at this point I've been here for 10 years. It was my first full-time job after leaving school. Wow. And I thought, hmm, what am I going to do next? <laughs> so... We were told that we would be looked after and given a a redundancy package, Um, but it dragged on for more than a year that we were under notice of redundancy, um, which led to quite a a downhearted atmosphere of everybody kind of in limbo waiting to move on. Um, So fast forward through that a little bit. I decided that I didn't have enough health and safety experience outside that sphere of operation to be considered a general practitioner. So I decided to go out there and get myself as much experience as I could. And I met a gentleman who still remains a friend of mine now, a guy called William Crystal. Willie is a brilliant guy. He's an ex-airport fireman and he had um, just left the airport fire brigade and put himself through the same degree that I wanted to go and study at the University of the West of Scotland. It's a very well-respected health and safety degree programme and we'll touch a little bit on that later on. I'll talk to you a little bit more detail about that. Uh And, uh, well, Willie had set up his own consultancy business and training business called MagSafe Solutions. It was quite small at the time. It's not the the size of the organisation now he was just a kind of startup at that time and I asked him for some work experience and he said yes 
Now let me go out and work with them to see some of the sites that he was working on. Okay. And at that time, he was consulting to everything from a funeral parlour and an anaerobic digestion plant right through to vehicle refinishing workshops, um, maintenance places, construction businesses, you name it, he was consulting to it. Wow. Funeral directors are probably some of the the, the worst people I've ever dealt with um, <laughs> for practical jokes and things like that. I can remember going to the funeral home to talk to them about their, their chemical control and putting a, a cost risk assessment in place um, for the, the chemicals that they had on site. And I, I walked into the, the actual parlour and there was a, an empty coffin and they decided to play a bit of a practical joke on me and jumped out and scared me. Oh. And you could have scraped me off of the ceiling oh. at that point. I didn't oh, really wow. fancy going back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I've got some great experience there. But what I'd done was I worked with Willie from kind of 8 o'clock every morning up until 1 o'clock. And then from there... I went back to work in the printing site from 2pm to 10pm. Wow. So I was working masses of hours to mm -hmm. get that experience up and really learn my craft. From there, I managed to get my place at university and I finished working with the printing business on the Friday and started at university on the Monday at the ripe old age of 27 yeah. as a mature student away back to school. Yeah, yeah. And it was great. The University of the West of Scotland course is absolutely fantastic. The principal lecturer is a gentleman who's well respected in the health and safety industry called Jan Miller. Hmm. Jan has a really interesting and diverse background as well. That He was a farm engineer um, working in the agricultural industry before moving into safety. Yeah great guy, That's really awesome. enjoyed some of the courses that he presented to us as part of the university degree and uh, I actually told this story the other day, I was asked to go back and speak to the new entrance students as one of the alumni to the course yeah. and tell them a bit of information about how I had found the course and some of the stuff that I'd done and I said I absolutely hated the science part of the course <laughs> um, we studied this part of the course called analytical measuring which was theoretical chemistry and a kind of science-based side of it. And if I said when I was at school I wasn't very academical, I would probably be doing myself a, a massive disservice. Um, I didn't really particularly enjoy school. Um, if there was something more interesting happening, like going to the, the shopping arcade, yeah, yeah. I would disappear over the fence at lunchtime and not come back. <laughs> wow. So it was a real challenge for me to try and teach myself the science inside of things mm -hmm. and I kicked and I screamed and I bucked and I said I'm never going to use this in the industry what has this got to do with health and safety this is driving me up the wall <laughs> I went and I got additional help I got myself a tutor and I learned it and we also had a great network I had some fantastic people at university with me who were all kind of adult entrants a lot of them were working in the industry and one or two of them deserve a mention here the guy called called Matt Orr and another guy called Colin Hargraves who were very influential to me. I 
and we formed up this study group to support each okay. other. Colin is now just about to become an independent site inspector for the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority in the UK, wow. which is quite a highly regulated yeah, role. He's going in as the, the regulator now. Great guy, absolutely fantastic person, and I really value him as a, a friend and a colleague. Um, so we all kind of worked together, mucked in and battled through the science part of it. And I came out with a, a 96% on my exam. Wow, um, When we got to the exam stage with it, it was fantastic to, to achieve that. And it was something that I really thought, right, I'll never use this. I've done it. I've put my mind to it. I've beat it. <laughs> I've got the, the, the ticket yeah. in the bag for it and I'll move on from it. And then you had but to calculate breakthrough that, rates for a PPE and then you had to learn about yeah, all the other... <laughs> if I tell you a little bit more about it, keep that in mind and we'll come back to that in a yeah. little minute when I tell you this story. So I moved on from, um, I was still at university and the guy that I mentioned, Matthew, um, he worked for a business called Land Engineering, who unfortunately are no longer trading anymore. Fantastic company again, big civil engineering business in Scotland, um, and they were working on some great super projects at the time. One that sticks out to me was the New South Glasgow Hospital project that was being managed by a business called Multiplex, who are a big Australian outfit. Um, that do super projects specifically and we were working as a subcontractor on the project but it was the best managed construction site that I have ever been on so I got the opportunity through Matthew to do a bit of work with him as a kind of work placement because I had that ambition to get into the construction industry so I went to work with him um, at Land Engineering and we worked on loads of different sites that New South Glasgow Hospital project was just one of many projects that we were working we were also working on a Lendlease project which was the Strathclyde Technology and Innovation Centre mm-hmm. which was affectionately known as the Tick Building Okay. So it was uh, <laughs> an £89 million construction project Goodness. that they were building a new part of the Strathclyde University campus. Wow. Um, the hospital project that I mentioned with Multiplex was an £880 million UK pounds project. Mm-hmm. Just to give you an idea of the it's scale massive. of it, it was a new super hospital and children's hospital in the south of Glasgow. Um, now known as the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Hmm. So that was a fantastic kind of exposure to the construction industry. Um, Really enjoyed my work there, worked on a lot of different projects. Went back to university um, after the kind of winter break uh, over Christmas, complete my exams and decided, right, need to knuckle down a little bit here. So I stopped working with land engineering, had a bit of a gap and worked on my university academical work as a kind of sole focus. Knuckled down and studied hard for my end of year exams and passed them all with flying colours. Excellent. And I got a great opportunity to go and work with another construction business called the Robertson Group, who are one of the biggest privately owned construction companies in the UK. 
Um, and they were working on loads of different stuff at that time. Again, huge big super projects. They had a project called the New McAllen Distillery and Visitors Centre, mm. which was the first subterranean distillery in the world. Subterranean. They underneath a hillside. Yes, it's all underground. Wow. Um, it's absolutely fascinating. If you get the chance, look it up on the internet. It's uh, in a place called Craigerichie, away in the Scottish Highlands, and it's brilliant. Absolutely fantastic project. And I was there right at the start of it, and when they were doing a lot of the M&E work as well. Um, I worked all around Scotland with the Robertson Group getting experience and I got to work with a really great guy. Um, I got the opportunity to work with a gentleman called Murray Proven. Murray had been an HSE inspector for 20 years, so he worked for the regulator as the construction inspector out of the Edinburgh office for HSE. And I learned a lot working with Murray. He was really influential in my early career. A lot of the great experience that I've got now was driven off of the back of some of the information that he provided me with. Um, I got to ask him all the weird and wonderful questions you would love to ask the regulator, but maybe didn't ever have the, <laughs> yeah. the chance or the opportunity Yeah, you, to. you don't want to get cited, so you can't ask. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah so that's great. That, that was fantastic experience for me early in my career. And our director of safety at that point was a guy called Ken Miller. Um, Ken, brilliant director of safety, came from a very strong house building background, but had then taken up the role as director with the Robertson Group, which also had a house building arm. Mm. And I got called into his office one day and he said, I've got a new job for you. I said, okay, what is it? And he said, you're going to look after all of the residential construction businesses. And I thought, oh no, (laughs) what have you done to me? Um, Now comes all that calculation when you have to start thinking about fall protection and everything else. (laughs) Well, at that time, the residential businesses... um, were seen as a little bit of a kind of difficult area to work with <laughs> and the other kind of overriding thing was I didn't understand how fast paced they were at that time but having worked with them residential construction is looked down a little bit by the kind of commercial construction people in the UK they call it house bashing or oh knocking my. out houses because oh, wow. you build the same product over and over again but <laughs> wow the so there's a tier to this the they were the lower tier yeah, there's a, a bit of a kind of high, hierarchical system hierarchical. if you listen to the commercial construction people um, but house building is one of the most fast paced industries that I've ever worked in <laughs> yeah the reason being is it's such a high risk because you build a new housing development, the business that you're working for have put all of the money out up front to pay for the planning permission, the purchase of the land. So they're looking for speed to get their initial investment back. So they want the houses built really quickly. Mm-hmm. The other thing that they want is to move people into your site. So your site's constantly evolving because if you build 12 houses and the first six are ready, 
They yeah. occupy those and they'll move the fence line back. So wow. you're introducing that additional hazard that you don't get in a commercial project. On a commercial project, you turn up at the start of the site, you set the fencing up all the way around the site and it's a secure environment. Mm-hmm. Not on a residential site. On a residential site, you'll have uh, the family coming onto the site to look at the house that they want to buy wow. and they'll try and sneak round the fence and come in and have a look. <laughs> you know? yeah. So really fast-paced, really enjoyable Lots of different risks associated with it as well, looking at everything from the kind of groundworks, mm-hmm. installing a, a whole kind of development of maybe three or four hundred units, mm-hmm. putting in the roads and sewers and the yeah. infrastructure to support the water runoff for that, as well as then constructing up to floor slab level. And then the Robertson Group have a timber engineering manufacturing business as well within the group that they build all of the houses out of timber frame Uh so they would develop the timber frames off site and they were absolute experts at constructing these houses so they could construct a kit timber house kit in one day and they could have it wind and watertight in one month wow so you would have multiple trades all working and then you're looking at multiple sites all across the UK. I also had one of the businesses, a, a business called Robertson Partnership Homes, was in its infancy at that stage, it taking a bit of a loan off the business to set up. And their kind of big selling point was that they created social housing. So uh, housing's owned okay. by councils and housing associations for affordable rent yeah. for families to move into. Was it and like apartment buildings and uh, and yeah, or... apartment buildings, uh, houses, okay. all all kind of different. Each development was different. They also had specialist accessible houses for people that had disabilities, um, such as wheelchair accessible houses and things along those lines. So they really developed, they were big projects. And what their selling point was, they would find a package of land and go to the local council and say, we can build you this many houses for this much cost mm. and this much time scale, which was a bit of a novel approach. And the local councils absolutely bit their hand off to get them through the door. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they develop those houses and then really start to build them up from there. And you're over um, the whole safety and health of that, that division at that yeah. point? Yeah, yeah. Wow, did you have anybody underneath you? No, me, myself and I investigating all of the incidents, working through all of it, but I had a great support network above me and Ken being the director and then a group safety manager there as well to support. So... That was that was the setup at that time. So I was mm. still at university studying through that and uh, really working across all of those sites, carrying out all the incident and accident investigations, as I said, giving them support, inspecting the sites, making sure that the sites were up to standard, um, wow. really going into the level of engaging with the contractors as well on site and engaging with the management team. Any recurring issues, I would work to close them out. And Robertson's had an excellent safety record in the UK they're a fantastic business and I really really enjoyed my time there they were a great company to work for they were really great on the training and development side of things they nothing was an object to them they would develop you through put you on a lot of different courses train you around the UK get you on different sites and working with different safety managers and really getting that 
additional experience because mm-hmm. they, they really had that grasp on if you get someone into the business and mould them into the way that we do things around here, give them the information and give them the right experiences, it will stand them in good stead coming through and managing any of their business. So yeah. fantastic and, and, uh, organization can This episode has been powered by Safety FM.